Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Romans chapter 10 is where we're going to be. We conclude Romans chapter 10 this morning. And uh, I wanted to give you uh, some permission. I had a couple people the past couple weeks tell me, man, you know, really enjoyed this point or that point or whatever. And I wanted to say amen, but I just, you know, didn't do it. I want to give you the permission. Y'all can talk. It, may, it makes the sermon shorter, actually. The more you talk. All right? I like hearing from you. So, so y'all talk to me. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14, Paul writes, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he speaks these words. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him? Of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. What a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. I was in New York City the past couple of days meeting with some church planters there to hear their vision for how they are trying to reach the city of New York with the gospel. And during that trip, I learned a lot about New York, um, a lot of things I did not understand about New York City, a lot of things uh, that were, I had one expectation and it was different. Uh, but one of the things that you probably won't find too surprising about New York is that people there do not want to talk to you, really about anything. Um, but especially they do not want to talk to you about Jesus. Um, one of the pastors described it this way, and I thought it was very helpful. He said, everyone has two walls, two walls that we put up. We all have two walls. A, a, and, and a bigger wall, kind of, you know, as a defensive mechanism, a bigger wall and a smaller wall. He said in most of the country, particularly the South, but the Midwest as well, most of the country, our first wall is the smaller wall. And that wall, it's easy to get over. It is having everyday, normal conversations with people. You walk in the grocery store, you might find someone you've never met and end up striking up a conversation with them for a few minutes and then move on. Uh, getting past that first wall for us is usually quite easy. We're friendly, we talk to people, we have general niceness and conversations. Uh, we're pretty good at that. But that second wall is really big. That second wall, that second hurdle in people's lives is big. And that is the wall that is where things get real. It's where we talk about the messy things, the, the hard, the scary things, our, our worries and our fears and our hopes and our insecurities. It's that deeper stuff. That wall for us is really big. Like we'll talk to all the people in the world about how uh, the Bengals should have won the Super Bowl and you can't throw more flags in one minute of the game than the whole rest of the game combined. We can talk about that all day long to any stranger we meet on the street. Who day? Who day? We can talk about that with people, but as soon as we want to kind of get o over the next wall, 
or we talk about our fears and our struggles and our hurts and our pain and our worries and our hopes. I don't really want to talk about that. Let's talk about the Bengals. Let's talk about the weather. We don't want to be vulnerable. But in New York City, it's exactly the opposite. It is exactly the opposite. The first wall is really high. If, so, if you start talking to someone in New York City and you don't really have a real good reason to be talking to that person, they want to know, what's your angle? What are you doing? What are you up to? What do you want? Why are you talking to me? <laughs> they don't want to talk to you. But if you can get past that wall, if you can get over that first big wall and just enter into a conversation with somebody and they genuinely want to have that conversation with you, then getting over the second wall is really small. They'll talk to you about their hurts and their pains and their past drug addictions and how they've been in prison. They'll talk to you about what's going on in their life and their hurt and their worries and their fears and, and all the things. They'll talk about all that stuff if you can get over the first big wall of just talking to them at all. People are quick to be vulnerable there if you can get past that first wall. But think about that for a moment. What is their first reaction? Their first reaction is, what are you trying to sell me? The first reaction is, what's your angle? And then they realize, oh, you're just another Christian trying to shove Jesus down my throat. Heard it before, tired of it, get out of here. All right, all right, okay. Get away from me. In some ways, that is unique to the big city, but in other ways, we kind of understand that a little bit, right? We kind of understand a little bit of what it's like to talk, try to talk to someone about Jesus, and, and they're tired of people trying to shove religion down their throat. We understand when, when people are like, I don't want to hear it. You're just another Christian stuck in their ways, trying to cram your religion down my throat, leave me alone. We can understand that. We've met people like that. And in some ways, the fact that people feel that way, it isn't our fault. The people that, some, part of the reason that people feel that way has, isn't our fault. It's the fault of the guys at the bingo stadium who have megaphones yelling at everybody how they're going to go to hell when I'm just trying to go see a football game. It's the fault of people who leave those million-dollar tips for their waitress and don't give them real money, but they just give them that track instead. And there's these people who have burned bridges to the gospel, it's partly their fault. But what do we do now? What do we do now when people don't want to hear from us? Do we stop sharing? Do we stop talking? Do we just live a Christian life in front of people and hope that they put the pieces of the puzzle together and figure it out? No, we can't do that. So what do we do with people who don't want to hear? Let me pose another question to you. Not just people who don't want to hear or don't want to listen to us, but what about the 2.2 billion, with a B, people on the earth who do not know Jesus? And when I say do not know Jesus, I don't mean that they don't believe. That number is much bigger. I mean the 2.2 billion people who literally have never heard of Christianity, who have never heard of a guy named Jesus, they are completely clueless to the gospel. What happens to those people? What happens to those people who have never had a chance to believe because they don't know? They've not been given the option. What happens to them when they die? Does God look at them and say, you know, I know you've sinned and I know you've rebelled against me. I know your heart and your life are against me. I know you didn't have the chance to get saved, so I'm just going to give you a free pass. Is that what happens? Absolutely not. And so let me be very clear from the beginning. Those who have never heard the gospel do not get a free pass to heaven. Those who have never heard the gospel, who have never had the chance to believe, do not get a free pass to heaven. Because if they did, 
if that was how it worked, then we should stop telling anyone about Jesus. Bring all the missionary homes, shut up and stop talking about Jesus because as soon as you tell someone about him, you, you decrease their odds of going to heaven. If ignorance got us to heaven, we shouldn't tell anybody. Of course, that's not the way it works. How silly is that? And that is the point Paul has been building to for 10 chapters. That he's slowly been building this argument at this point that is concluding in these verses in chapter 10. And I want to show you the argument from the beginning. I want to begin to build it and put it all together for you so that you understand really the whole book of Romans, the whole point of what Paul is doing here, how he's building this argument. So the first, we're going to go through these premises that he's gone through. So premise one, everyone knows there's a God. You're here, you might remember this. Everyone knows there's a God. This is Romans chapter one. Everyone knows there's a God. I'm going to read real quick from Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember that word, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul lays out this premise. The first part of this bigger argument that everywhere, everyone, and all times have known there is a God. And in the, in the first two chapters, he really shows that there are two ways people know there is a God. The first, he says, that people know there is a God because they see him in the creation of the world. That the world does not present itself to us as the result of, of a random act. The world does not present itself to us as the result of a coincidence. Instead, the world presents itself to us as designed. It, when we look at the world, we see a creator. We see a designer. We see a divine artist who has taken great care and precision to craft the world. Most theologians talk about it like this, like if you're walking along the beach and you found a pocket watch, you picked it up and you opened it up and you saw all the gears and all the mechanisms inside of it turning and working, you wouldn't look at that and say, man, I cannot believe that the water hitting the sand over thousands of millions of years somehow put this watch together. No, you would say, no, somebody made this watch and just dropped it in the sand. In the same way, when we look at the world, we say, someone designed this world. Someone made it. And so we all know intrinsically in the deepest parts of our hearts that God exists because we look at the creation itself and know that it must have been designed. But second, he says, we know that God exists because God's law is written on our hearts. He basically argues that every person everywhere has a sense of moral principles, that they have this sense of right and wrong, that everyone has a sense of justice, that when wrongs happen, they've got to be righted. But people who do not know the law, right, people who have never opened a Bible, people who do not know anything of Judaism or Christianity, know that there is a right and a wrong. They know that murder is wrong, that murder is evil. And because of this reality, because of this universal truth of right and wrong written on everyone's heart, it is evidence, Paul argues, that, the, that God has put his law on our hearts. He's put morality on our hearts. Therefore, we must know there is a God who exists. So premise one, everyone knows there is a God. Premise two, Paul says, is that everyone knows there's a God, and premise two is everyone has rejected God. 
that the natural state of man is rebellion against him. We look at the creation, and the creation is screaming to us that it was obviously created, that it was obviously designed, that it was obviously intelligence behind making it. But yet we look at the world, and we see the truth right in front of us, and instead of believing the truth, we suppress it. We suppress the truth. Like pushing a beach ball down under the water and holding it there. The truth is always wanting to pop up, and we just want to keep pushing it down. We would rather face a lie than believe it to be the truth than face the actual truth. It's the natural state of our hearts. We take what is plain and simple and make it complicated. We take what is true and pretend it's false. We take the truths about God and we either rebel against them completely or we distort them into making uh, God into something that we can manage or that we like or we deny it altogether. Everyone everywhere, whether they know Jesus whether they know about salvation or not, has rejected the truth, has rejected God. And there are no, understand, there are no innocent people in hell. There are no innocent people in hell. Everyone in hell is someone who did not want the truth, suppressed it, and turned away from God. Premise three, God has rightfully condemned everyone. God has rightfully condemned everyone. You see, God doesn't send anyone to hell who doesn't fully deserve to be there. In chapter 2, Paul basically argues that if those who do not know the law, those who don't know the rules, don't know the Bible, they don't have the scriptures, that if God judged those people simply based on their own moral compass, and simply based on the things that they have said they believe are right and they believe are wrong, if he would judge them just by their own rules, they would still be found guilty. Because he says we, we break our own rules all the time. And so he says that they are a law unto themselves, guilty of the very things they say are wrong. And so every person in the world, from the moment they know right or wrong, are under the just condemnation of God. We are guilty. We are all guilty, not because of what we haven't heard. We are all guilty, not because of what we haven't heard, but because of what we have heard and rejected. You get that. God does not condemn people for not hearing about Jesus or not being Christians or not believing. He condemns them for suppressing, distorting, and rejecting the knowledge of God that we have done. Everyone has done. In chapter 3, he says, all have turned away. All have become worthless. There's no one who does good. No one seeks God. No, not even one. God doesn't condemn people for the lack of knowledge in Jesus or salvation. He condemns them because of their own sin, which everyone has, and for their own rejection and suppression of the truth, which they have. That's chapters 1 through 3 that Paul begins to build that argument that everyone knows there's a God, everyone has rejected God, and everyone rightly deserves his condemnation. But then then he kind of begins to transition. And in chapters 4 and 5, he lays out beautifully that that so far it seems really hopeless and really depressing and really sad that there is this great hope. That there is this great hope for every person in the world, no uh, no matter who they are. No matter how much they've suppressed the truth, no matter if they stand condemned in their sin, that there is hope because in premise four, God has made salvation available to everyone. God has made salvation available to everyone. That in the darkness of our sin and death and on our path to hell enters Jesus. The one who takes our punishment. The one who lives perfectly in our place. The one who provides a way of escape from judgment and the wrath of God and grants us access to him and invites us into his family. And this gift 
he makes clear, isn't just for the Jews. But it's for everyone in the whole world. It's for the Gentiles. It's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's for the rich. It's for the poor. It's for anyone who will take it. It comes to everyone. There is no one in the world so lost that the blood of Jesus could not save them. There is no one in the world so lost that the blood of Jesus is incapable of saving them. So that sets the stage. Then we get to chapter 10. And he's laid this groundwork. Everyone knows God. Everyone was rejected God. Everyone stands condemned to hell before God. But now salvation has come and been offered to everyone. And so here is the argument of chapter 10. Argument 1.1. That individuals are responsible for believing in Jesus. Individuals are responsible for believing in Jesus. Verse 13, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The responsibility is on you. The responsibility to believe the gospel is on you. You must follow Jesus. You must confess that you are a sinner. You must make Jesus your king and follow him. Your parents cannot do it for you. Your family, your spouse cannot do it for you. No one becomes a follower of Jesus by osmosis. No one slowly drifts and one day realizes that they're a follower of Jesus. That doesn't happen. Going to church does not make you a follower of Jesus. Reading your Bible does not make you a follower of Jesus. Giving or serving in the church does not make you a follower of Jesus. You must call upon the Lord, believe the gospel, make Jesus your king, and do these things for yourself. The responsibility is on you as an individual. No one can do it for you. And second, point two, he says, the gospel can't be believed until it's heard. The responsibility is on you to believe, but it can't be believed until it's heard. In verse 14, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? Now, this is the crucial point of this entire message, and I think of this entire chapter, and what Paul has been building to. That if there are all these people who do not know the gospel, and if they do not know the gospel, they're going to stand condemned. They've rejected God. They're standing condemned in their sin. Salvation has been offered, but they don't have it. And how are they going to have it if they don't hear about it? This is the crucial point. How will people believe in a gospel they've never heard? The 2.2 billion people around the world this very moment who've never heard about Jesus, who are in a collision course with hell, with no knowledge of a gospel that can save them. How are they going to hear it? You know, we want people to believe, right? God wants people to believe. He's made salvation available to everyone. The gospel, which literally means good news, right? Euangelion means good news. This good news of the gospel is only good news if it reaches people in time. It's only good news if it gets there. It's only good news if they hear it. Now, it is true that some people out there um, in the middle of nowhere, through the grace of God, he does something in them that they somehow look at nature and respond and begin to seek after God. It is true that sometimes people get dreams or visions from the Lord and they begin to believe in this God that they've dreamed of. But without fail, every single time, after that dream or after that beautiful sunset that sparked in them this belief in a creator, Every single time some missionary comes rolling in. 
and he begins to share the gospel with them, and they believe it. We see an example of this in, in Acts. Remember when we went through Acts, in Acts chapter 10, there was this guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius was a God-fearer, meaning he, was, he wasn't a Jew, but he began to believe in the God of the Jews. And he was doing all that he could as a Gentile to believe in God. It wasn't enough. So what did God do? But he sent Peter to Cornelius' house so that Peter could share the gospel, share Jesus with Cornelius, that he might believe and be saved. The gospel had to be revealed. And it wasn't until the gospel was revealed that Cornelius was saved. And it's not until the gospel is preached that people can believe it and be saved. The Bible tells us that there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. That's the name of Jesus Christ. You can't look at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful flower and be saved. You cannot look at the Grand Canyon or the great oceans, the great beautiful things in the world and be saved. It's not enough. Maybe you've heard this quote before. It's really famous. People use it all the time. It's a quote that says, share the gospel when necessary, use words. Share the gospel when necessary, use words. And it is a clever line. It is a clever line that seems quite profound, quite trendy. But in reality, it is incredibly foolish, incredibly ignorant. Share the gospel when necessary, use words, assumes that the gospel can be shared without the use of words, which is, non, which is untrue. Now, do our lives play a role? Absolutely. Do our lives and how we live play a role in sharing the gospel? Of course they do. You know, in our mission statement, we talk about how, you know, we want to make Jesus essential through the gospel proclaimed, understood, and practiced. Right? We believe the gospel is something we must practice, meaning it is something we must live out in our life. That our lives are changed by the work of Jesus and other people should see it. Right? We, we do believe that. And, and what that means is that uh, when everyone else at your job is cheating or cutting corners, we don't. We work hard as unto the Lord. And we think people should take notice of that. It means that when all your friends go out for drinks, you go and you drink responsibly. It means that you show kindness and gentleness. It means you show restraint and patience. It means when your buddies talk crap about their spouses behind their back, you only praise your spouse, even if she's driving you crazy. Or he's, hey, there we go. It means that you let your joy shine forth in your life in such a way that people hopefully ask, why are you so weird? Why are you so different? What is different about you? Hopefully your life is lived in such a way that people just want to ask that question. But understand, you can live a great and even perfect Christian life in front of other people and never have shared the gospel with them. Because to share the gospel requires words. It requires articulation. Your actions and your life may model the results of the gospel. That you have been changed. But your life can never preach the gospel. The gospel can only be shared by using words. The gospel can only be shared by using words. There must be words. The only way people can be saved, the only way their lives can be changed, the only way they can receive and understand and believe the gospel and be saved and be changed is through words. Preaching. As this verse talks about, the, that how will they hear if there is no one preaching? The preaching that this verse talks about 
it is not speaking of what I'm doing right now. It is not talking about getting up on a Sunday morning and delivering a sermon. What Romans 10 means when it says preaching, it means sitting down in a coffee shop and sharing with a friend how Jesus has changed your life. It means sitting with a coworker over a lunch break or while you fill up your coffee at the break table and telling them about Jesus and how he's transformed your life. Preaching here is simply normal, everyday types of conversations that you have with other people about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. For too long, I think we have been content to hope that those in our lives will just somehow notice that you're different and then seek it out on their own. That you hope that they notice the cross necklace you wear or the Christian t-shirt you wear. Or that they notice that you're kinder than the average Joe, and maybe through that somehow they'll get it. Or worse, we assume that because they live in America, they already know about Christianity and understand enough to believe it or reject it, and we don't need to do anything. We don't need to say anything. The gospel is this message of good news, but it is a message that must be shared and proclaimed and shouted from the rooftops. Symbols and t-shirts and necklaces and lives modeled after Christ are good things, but they are not good enough. You must open your mouth and speak the truth of the gospel if there is any hope for people to be saved. There is a, there's a big church uh, down south, mega church, um, and uh, it's one of those churches where you know there's like a massive choir behind everybody, and there's like 100 people in the choir, and while the pastor's preaching, everybody's still up there behind them. And so there was this church, and, and, and he, this guy's preaching, and the choir's behind him, and in the middle of the service, this guy has a heart attack out in the, in the audience. And so they kind of stop, and a uh, team rushes in, and some doctors rush in that went to the church, and they grab him, they take him out, and are working on him, the pastor stops, and prays for him real quick, and then he goes back to preaching. And he's preaching and and going through the text and and talking, and halfway through that sermon, the the doctor that helped the guy out opened the door to look at the pastor, and the whole choir can see, and he looks at the pastor, and he goes, the pastor gets the symbol, and and he continues to preach. Service ends, and uh, he shakes hands, everything, and he gets in the car, and he goes home. Um, and on the way home, his wife is like stewing, you know, arms crossed. One of those, you know how you ask your wife sometimes, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> okay, what's wrong? And finally gets it out of her, and she looks at him. This is a true story. This is a true story. She looks at him, and she says, you are the most arrogant, self-absorbed man I have ever met. You care nothing about anyone else but yourself and your stupid sermon. And he looks at her and he's like, what are you talking about? She said, that man in our church died today. And you didn't even stop to recognize him. And he looked at her and she said, he died? What do you mean he died? She said, yeah, the doctor opened the door. I was in the choir. The doctor opened the door. And he said, he died. He's gone. And he said, that's what this meant? I thought this meant he was safe. I thought this was safe. And so he hits the brakes and turns it around and goes and, and he gets, finds the doctor. And he, he goes up to the doctor and he says, hey, what does this mean? He said, it means what you think it means. Everything's fine. He's okay. And he's like, thank you, Jesus. You see, signs and symbols can be good. 
but they fall way short of being able to effectively communicate. And when we have the most important truth in the world, we cannot leave it to hope people figure out the signs we drop by the life we live. We've got to use words. The gospel cannot be communicated without words. No one's going to pick it up by watching the way you live. Instead of preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Our motto should be preach the gospel. It's necessary to use words. Preach the gospel. It is the reason our mission statement says that if we are to make Jesus essential, we must proclaim the gospel. That's why that is first. It must be proclaimed. It must be spoken. That is step one. Because without hearing the gospel, no one can believe it. And without believing it, they cannot be saved. And how are they to believe on him and whom they have not heard? The only way they're going to believe in this Jesus whom they've not heard is if someone shares it. Someone tells them. Someone articulates. Someone speaks. Inviting Inviting people to church is a good thing. But what is better? What is best is you yourself sharing the gospel with people in your life. If you are a child of God, think the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and you have this message of the gospel that God tells us his word never returns void. You have this message that has power to save people, power to change people. Do not belittle that gospel message to think you can mess it up, that you're not smart enough to share it. That you could mess it up because you, you, you don't have all the right words and you don't know how to argue and all these things. No. The gospel is powerful, not your ability to be persuasive. The gospel is powerful, not your ability to make it attractive. And so God, in his, God always displays his power, not through strength, but through weakness. He wants to use your jabbering. He wants to use your awkwardness. He wants to use your stumbling through the conversation. He wants to use your nervous stutter. He wants to use all of those weaknesses in your life to share, for you to share the gospel and use his strength to save people. You cannot mess it up. All you have to do is proclaim the gospel, which is Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means for them. And people will believe and be changed. Third point is that the time to share is now. The time to share is now. You see, if what Paul has been saying is true, if what Paul has been saying throughout the entire book of Romans, all the premises, all the things leading up, all his argument, if it is all true, then that means about two-thirds of the people on the planet right now, which are 4.5 billion people, 4.5 billion people right now are lost, have rejected God, and under the rightful wrath and condemnation and judgment of a good God and are on their way to hell. 4.5 billion people. And that seems like a massive problem that we have no hope of fixing. But let me tell you where you can make a difference. You have coworkers right now who do not believe and are on their way to hell. You have family members right now who do not believe and are on their way to hell. You have neighbors who live literally right next door to you who do not believe and are on their way to hell. Start there. 
we might not be able to solve the 4.5 billion people around the world, but there's a whole bunch of people really, really close to you right now. There's a whole lot of people far from God really, really close to you right now. Let's start there. Be intentional. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Listen a lot. Listen a lot. Ask them what they think about the world, what they think about spiritual things. Ask them. Then, after you've listened, if it'd be okay if you shared some of your thoughts. Share your story about how God has changed your life. Share what Jesus has done for you and what he means to you. And ask them if they want to believe it, if they want to hear more. Because what we, we've got to stop waiting around for people to come to us and ask us about our faith. How often has that happened to you? How often do people just come up to you and go, can you tell me about Christianity? I really think I want to be saved. I mean, that'd make it a lot easier, right? But that's not going to happen. We've got to go to them. Paul is saying the time is now. The time is not when it feels right. The time is not when it's convenient. Time is now, and time is something we must steward. And the time is now. We've got to act. One of our core values says that we believe that every member is a missionary. We get that from a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous Baptist pastor, preacher in London. He said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's intense. <laughs> that's, that's convicting. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So we believe that every member ought to be a missionary. That doesn't mean you go to Africa. It means you go to work. It doesn't mean you go to Zimbabwe. It means you do stuff with your kids in your house. It doesn't mean that you go to Russia. It means you go to the, to the bleachers of the ball game your kids are playing at. As followers of Jesus, sharing the gospel is not something we have the option of doing. It is something we must do. It is something we've been commanded to do. And let me be clear, this is a core value of ours, but it is not something we have arrived at yet. It's a core value of ours, but it's not something we've achieved. We're not there where every member sees themselves as a missionary. But let me tell you what my dream is. My dream is that we have so many people, so many of you guys, leading people to Christ on their own in your own life that I no longer baptize people because, well, remember my commitment to you? If you start the work, you get to finish it. And so we have you guys doing the baptisms because you are so busy leading people to Christ that y'all are the ones getting wet. You got to start somewhere. So maybe pray for God to give you opportunities. Maybe start asking questions and listening to see if you might start a conversation. You got to just be intentional. You got to start somewhere. You've got to stop waiting. The urgency is now because Paul is telling us for this whole book that people are on a highway to hell. Their ignorance doesn't save them. We've all rejected God, and their only hope is this gospel that's been available to all, and the only way they're going to hear it is if you share it with them. You know, I used to think, back in the day, I used to think that it was unfair for God to condemn people who hadn't heard. But uh, we see from the book of Romans that that is not true. But what is not fair, however, is that those of us who have heard so much of this truth, that we do so little to get that message to those who have heard nothing about God at all, about a God who's done everything to save us. 
verse 15, Paul says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach unless they're sent? If you didn't know this before, you know now that as ones who believe the gospel for yourself, if you're in this room and you've believed it, you have been commissioned by God and sent by God to the mission field to preach the gospel. That is not something that you get specifically called to do. It's not something that some of us are called to do and some of us aren't. Every one of us in this room who follows Jesus have been called and commissioned by our king to share this message with everyone we can. Everything in your life is a platform from God by which you have been given to use as the advancements of the gospel. Your your home is a platform. Your job, your car, your gifts, your hobbies, everything in your life is a platform. You might that you get now get to go and use for this message. We are a sent people. We are a sent people. We don't wait for mission trips. We don't wait for people to come to us. We don't wait until it's too late. We go now. We go and make disciples. We go and share the gospel. We go and share our story. We go and make an impact for the kingdom because the only way people can believe the gospel is if they hear it. And the only way they will hear it is if you share it. So what is, it, what is it going to take for you to share it? For their sake, I hope it doesn't take too much. Because the only way they can believe is if they hear, and the only way they can hear is if you share And so what is it going to take for you? Pray. Father, this morning, we are reminded that in the busyness of our life, and the comings and goings, and all the things that we do, that time is something we must steward, that time is of the essence. You've made it clear that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we are on the front lines with a message that can save. That all we've got to do is share the message, plant the seed, knowing you'll do the rest. That we don't have to be incredibly articulate. We don't have to be persuasive. We don't have to be a good public speaker. That all we've got to do is sit down and tell people about how Jesus has changed our life. And that through the cross and the resurrection that their sins can be forgiven. And that he can become their king and their whole life be made new. God, would you give us the courage this morning to be a people who pray and ask that you every day would give us opportunities to share the gospel. And that you would give us the boldness and courage to carry that out. Here's my challenge to you this morning, church. If you're here this morning and you need courage, you want to share the gospel, but you're scared and you need courage and boldness to share the gospel with somebody. In a moment when we sing this song, I want you to come up here to the front and gather with other people and we're going to pray for that courage. If you are here this morning and you have been or you have planned or want to share the gospel with someone, you've got someone in your mind and you're like, you know what, I want to share the gospel with that person, I need to do it. But you want to pray that God would soften their heart, prepare them to receive the things that you want to share with them. Then you come up here in just a moment and you pray and we'll pray together that God will soften their hearts to receive the words you're going to give them. If you're here this morning and you have been sharing the gospel with someone and they are just not budging, they are not listening, they are stubborn and unmoving. And you come up here and pray that God would do, do a supernatural kind of work, a, a softening of the hardest of hearts that change their heart that they might believe. If you are here this morning and you want to share the gospel, but you don't know any lost people, 
you want to share the gospel, you're just not sure who you would share it with, then you come up here this morning and ask God to put someone in your life to share it with. If any of those things apply to you, and there should be many, many, all of us in this room who this applies to for followers of Jesus, then as we sing this song, you come up here and crowd around, grab a hand, and we're going to pray together that God would give us courage and opportunity and boldness and, and soften hearts that the gospel might go from here out and change the community. God, give us the courage to do that. If you're here this morning, those things apply to you. Stand up right now and let's walk up here. Let's stand together and sing and you walk up here right now. Jesus, give us courage in your name. Amen. Stand together.